Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. After reading Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we also will be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morai. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please now turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 1 through 16. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. The Apostle Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please look with me in your order of worship at the confessional reading element. This morning we are again taking a break from our series on the Belgic Confession. So this morning we'll be reciting Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 54, which explains what we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 54 asks, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. Let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless his word to us this morning. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in creation. That most elegant book in which all creatures serve as signs, symbols, and words pointing to your existence, your divinity, your power, glory, and justice. Heavenly Father, we thank you most of all that you have also revealed yourself to us in Scripture. And through Scripture, we come to know of your one plan of salvation for sinners. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we turn our attention to consider the truth of this inscripturated word, we, we ask that your spirit would be present, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our ears, and that you would allow us to not merely hear or read these words, but that we would inwardly digest them, that we may be built up in this Catholic Christian faith that you have granted to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, uh, just because we are taking a break from our Belgic Confession, uh, you are not off the hook. So, I've often said, echoing Paul's words in Romans 10, that the two most important habits in the Christian life is our believing and confessing. God made us with hearts and he made us with, with, uh, with mouths. And so already have given it away. What are we called to do with our hearts and mouths? Lise? Very good. We believe with our hearts and confess with our mouths. And you may notice we do that in our first service every Sunday. 
We believe the declaration of pardon and we confess a creed. Well, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that God is what? That God is what? Billion? Single, simple, and spiritual. Well, how is this single, simple, and spiritual God revealed? How, Marcus? Through his word and through creation. Speaking of his word, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Violet? The authoritative, sufficient, inspired word of God. What is creation? What do we believe about creation? That's the very beginning part of our Bibles. Isaiah? Created out of nothing. Now, after God created, did he leave all things to chance? What is his relationship to his creation after he made all things? Or to put it another way, what do we believe about God's providence? God's providence. What do we believe about God's providence? Matthias? Good. Yes, he's in control of all things. All things take place according to his orderly arrangements. What does it mean? Who are we as, as, as creatures, as humans? We are made in the... Marcus? The likeness and image of God. What is original sin? Adam and Eve didn't continue in that state of innocence, but they, uh, they sinned. And therefore, what do we believe about original sin? Thias? Very good. Yes, in Adam's sin, sinned we all. Our sin nature comes from Adam, comes from the performance of our first parents in paradise. Well, the last several weeks, we um, have taken some time to, to uh, we've been in the grace section of the Belgian Confession. What is God's response to the fall of, of our first parents? What does he do? He makes a covenant, but what kind of covenant? Marcus? The covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Election reprobation. Those two acts of God um, represent what attributes? What attributes? Ezekiel? His justice and his mercy. Very good. And we also... uh, I've recently considered the incarnation, which refers to how Jesus Christ took upon himself a real human nature. A real human nature. We have a mediator who is like us in every way, sin accepted. Now, we are taking a break from our Belgian Confession to, uh, again, consider why I'm wearing this. Why we made this transition. Why, why am I we- wearing a robe, a Genevan gown? For some of you, it seems Catholic, Roman Catholic, not lower C Catholic, but upper C Catholic. For others of you, it may seem as if we're no different than the mainline liberal church across town. Still, for others of you, it just seems weird. Why does my pastor look like Harry Potter? Strange, it's foreign. Why am I wearing a robe? In this sermon series, I'm attempting to answer the why question. Why have we made this transition? We as a consistory did not make this transition because we are wanting to become Roman Catholic, 
nor is it because we just want to be high church for the sake of being high church. Uh, still yet, it's not because we want to be superstitious or we want to put another stumbling block before visitors who may visit this congregation. We're doing this for biblical reasons, out of conviction. I'm attempting then to share that conviction with you over the course of this sermon series. You may remember that last week I told you that we should think of this topic of ministerial attire, meaning what I wear or what a pastor wears during corporate worship on the Lord's Day. We should think of this topic of ministerial attire through the lens of purposeful freedom. What I wear during worship on Sundays is an issue of freedom, meaning that God's word has not told us, told me, what I should wear. Just as God's word has not told us when we should meet on Sundays, or where we should meet, or what instrumentation we should use to assist our congregational singing, or even whether you should be sitting in pews or chairs or standing the whole time. These are the circumstances of worship. They are areas of freedom. Areas in which God's word does not speak explicitly to. Now, even though they're areas of freedom, we are still called to be purposeful as we make decisions within these areas. What do I mean by purposeful? I mean that we are to make decisions that best represent and reflect what we believe about the church, about the means of grace, about the office of pastor, namely what we believe is a reformed church. We are to make decisions that best represent and reflect what we believe as a reformed church. Consequently, then, we as a consistory believe that the gown best represents what we believe as a reformed church. It fits our identity. This week, the following week, and the week after that, I am going to be sharing, talking, teaching to you uh, what the gown represents. What does the gown represent? And as we consider what the gown represents, I pray that you all will begin to see that this is a purposeful move. Today we're going to consider how the robe represents our Catholicity, our lower C Catholicity, not our upper C, uppercase C uh, Catholicity, but our lowercase C Catholicity. The robe represents our Catholicity. We belong to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. As we consider this main idea, I'd like to do so in three main ways. First, we'll consider the call to embrace our Catholicity. Second, we'll consider the foundation of our Catholicity. Third, we will consider uh, the point embracing our Catholicity by embracing the robe. Embracing our Catholicity by embracing the robe. So first, the call to embrace our Catholicity. Now, the book of Ephesians is patterned after the law and the gospel. Ephesians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, are all gospel. These chapters are filled with indicatives, whereby God, uh, Paul is reminding the Christians in Ephesus of God's grace for Jew and Gentile alike. There aren't any imperatives in Ephesians 1 through 3. Now, in Ephesians 4 through 6, 
Paul is instructing these Ephesian Christians about how they are to respond to the gospel by living lives of grateful obedience in accordance with God's law. Boys and girls, the book of Ephesians is structured after our catechism. Grace, then gratitude. Salvation, then service. Ephesians 1 through 3, all about the gospel. Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul is focusing upon the imperatives of the Christian life, how we are to respond to the good news of the gospel. Look with me then at verse 1 of Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul is telling these Ephesian Christians that they are to live a life that is in accordance with their identity. They are to live a life in accordance with their identity. You claim to believe the gospel, you claim to be united with Christ, then you are to live as if you've been united to Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, if then you've been seated with Christ, then you are to seek the things that are above. You are to set your mind on the things that are above. We are to live lives that are in accord with our identity. This is what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Boys and girls, I alluded to this this morning, but it's sort of like if your parents tell you to be kind to your sibling or pick up your room or do your chores because you are um, a Witt, Overland, Wagner, etc. Because you have the last name that you have. Your last name tells you how you are to behave. There are certain values that your family prioritizes and you are called to live according to those values. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that you have been united to Christ. You are the recipient of the gospel, Ephesian church. Now live like it. Live it in accordance with that identity. In fact, this point is related to infant baptism, household baptisms that we witnessed earlier today. In Ephesians 6, Paul will go on and specifically address children. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. One of the motivations that God gives to children is that they belong to the Lord. They belong to the covenant community. They have a church family. Household baptisms, infant baptisms, represent this. They signify this reality that our children are not orphans, but they belong. They have not just a natural family, they have a church family. Thus, if we get rid of infant baptism, all that represents, we also are getting rid of one of the motivations that God desires to give to our children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. They're motivated to obey because they belong. They're members of the church. Well, verse 1 is uh, the skeleton of this call. Verses 2 and 3 give us flesh and blood uh, to this call. So verse 1 is essentially the the call itself, and then verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4 form the content of this call. 
Now notice particularly what Paul says in verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Part of our life of grateful service includes being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, te- of, of, uh, of peace. Part of our life of grateful service includes embracing our Catholicity. What does it mean to belong to the Catholic, Lower Sea Catholic Church? Well, remember Heidelberg Catechism 54. That Christ, through his spirit and word, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself a chosen community. And that I am and forever shall remain a living member of this community. This question answer is reminding us that Christ gathers a people that, that is not tied to a specific denomination or ethnicity or culture or language or even era in history. The church that Christ is gathering is truly universal. It transcends space and time. This is what we are confessing when we confess to believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Indeed, recall Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abram that in the new covenant, his family will take upon itself an international character. In the new covenant, Abram's family will bless all the families of the earth. The Abrahamic covenant is not tied to the people of Israel or the land of Canaan. It is truly universal. It transcends ethnicity and language and culture. We then are called to embrace our Catholicity, to embrace the universality of the kingdom of God in this age. We are called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is part of our life of grateful service. This is one of the ways in which we respond to the gospel. This is one of the ways in which we live as someone who's been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now notice further that in Ephesians 4 verse 3, Paul does not say that we create the unity of the Spirit. We are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is a very important distinction. We are not called to create this unity or this Catholicity. We are called to maintain this Catholicity. What is the difference between maintaining the unity of the spirits and creating the unity of the spirits? Well, really, the difference is the difference between building upon the foundation that Christ and the apostles laid in the first century and building upon a different or a new foundation. This then leads us to consider the foundation of our Catholicity, the foundation of our Catholicity. So in verses 4 through 6, Paul spells out the foundation of our Catholicity. In verse 4, Paul says that there is one body and there is one spirit. Just as you do not have multiple bodies, you have one body. So too, there are not multiple spirits, holy spirits, there are there is one Holy Spirit, which accords to the reality, which accords with the reality that you do not have multiple souls. 
You have one soul. But Paul continues. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What is your hope as a Christian? It's the new creation. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That is your hope. There are not multiple competing hopes within Christianity. There is one hope. That day of seeing Christ face to face. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This reference to one Lord is a reference to Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not your mediator. Mary and the saints and those who have gone on before us, they are not your mediators or intercessors. You have one Lord, one mediator, one intercessor. There's one faith. We all are called to the same faith. Boys and girls, remember what faith is? Cat, knowledge, assent, trust. We all are called to the same knowledge. Peter says that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Titus 1 that he was made an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. We are all called to give our assent to this knowledge. And furthermore, we're called to place a hearty trust in Jesus, and specifically that he is for us, that he is for me, that he is for you. There's one faith. There's also one baptism. Again, Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's one baptism that Christ gave his church. This is why, historically speaking, Reformed churches, Reformed and Presbyterian churches, have pretty much received and acknowledged the validity of, of any baptism that's been done in a church in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does it matter if that baptism was administered in a Roman Catholic church, an Eastern Orthodox church, a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Pentecostal church? As long as it was done in the name of the triune God in in a church, it's a credible baptism. Christ gave his church one baptism. This is the foundation of our unity. This is the foundation of our Catholicity. So what does it mean to embrace the unity of the Spirit? What does it mean to embrace our Catholicity? Well, it means that we do not find or base our unity on common cultural views or political convictions or a common ethnicity or heritage. We base our unity on our one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one Holy Spirit. We base our unity upon the foundation of our Catholicity. These things that Paul is spelling out for us in verses 4 through 6. This is what unites us together, beloved. It's not that you know, we're professionals or blue-collar workers or you know, we, we have this hobby or that hobby. These, are, these aren't the things that unite us when we come together on the Lord's Day. It's these things that Paul spells out for us in verses 4 through 6. 
Now, we also have to recognize that we live in a fallen world. We're sinners. And part of what it means to have a sinful nature is that we have a propensity to twist God's word. This is true of all of us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that there were those in his day who said, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. Paul says, what? Is Christ divided? Were you baptized in the name of Paul or was Paul uh, crucified for you? Paul is saying that there were divisions in the first century church. Why should we expect anything different today? We live in a fallen world. We're doing church with other sinners, which means that there will be divisions within the church. We aren't in the new creation yet. Therefore, we are to embrace those two realities, that we are called, we are called to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, but at the same time, we have to be realistic and realize that there are those who depart from Christ and his word, and there will be divisions, there will be denominations, uh, in the church in this age. Well, the reformers recognize these two realities. They recognize the call to embrace their Catholicity, but they also recognize that we live in a fallen world amongst other sinful human beings. They then were not trying to start a new church in the 16th century. They were not trying to completely unhinge themselves from what had, had, had gone on before them. They were not revolutionaries. They were reformers meaning that they were seeking to go back to the best of the early church while maintaining what was preserved through the medieval church. They were trying to go back to the best of the early church and, most importantly of all, to go back to the scriptures. In this sense, they were reformers. They were not revolutionaries. Now, their view of the Genevan gown or the robe is a great example of one way in which they sought to embrace the Catholicity of the church. The robe was one uh, great example of how the reformers sought to embrace the Catholicity of the church and thus is one way in which we can embrace the Catholicity of the church. We can embrace the Catholicity of the church by embracing the robe. I believe I mentioned this last week, but the attire of pastors in the early church was a plain black gown, what I'm wearing today. This was the attire, the common attire of pastors in the early church. Slowly over time, as the church began to see pastors not as priests, or not, excuse me, not as pastors, but as priests, they exchanged the plain black gown for vestments, highly adorned robes. Not a plain black robe, but highly adorned robes, robes that you would see today in the Roman Catholic Church. These vestments signified the belief that pastors are not pastors, but they're priests. Fast forward to the Reformation, the Reformers sought to get rid of the notion that pastors are priests, and consequently, they also sought to get rid of vestments, because vestments signified the priesthood. However, in the place of vestments, they desired to go back to the ancient attire of a plain black gown that pastors wore in the early church. They were not trying to start a new church. They were trying to embrace their Catholicity. In fact, listen to what 
one reformer says, uh, this reformer's name is Martin Bootser. He was a reformed theologian and pastor in the early and mid-16th century in the city of Strasbourg. This is what he says. In our churches, we have completely done away with and abolished everything which has no basis in the scriptures and which has been added to the Lord's Supper without any justification in the scriptures and therefore has been an insult and a slander of Christ and of the divine mercies. The priest and servant of the congregation does not wear a special vestment, only what we call the choir gown or the Genevan gown, and none of the sacrificial vestments, such as all stole and chasuble, etc. What he's saying here is that the reformers sought to get rid of the idea of pastors being priests, and thus they got rid of the vestments. But in their place, they returned to this ancient practice of pastors wearing plain black robes or gowns. In this way, the reformers were embracing their Catholicity. Now, it's important for us to recognize that whatever, really apart from the robe, whatever a pastor wears during church or during corporate worship necessarily ties himself to our current cultural moment. So apart from the robe, whatever a pastor wears during corporate worship necessarily ties himself to our current cultural moment. Let's take, for instance, a pastor who dresses like a hipster. Oversized denim, white sneakers, wide rim glasses. This is the attire of said pastor. This pastor is tying himself to a fashion trend that is, that is fashionable now, today, in this moment of history. So much so that if this pastor were to look at pictures of himself in 30 years from now, he would probably laugh at himself because he's very much out of style and out of fashion, and his church back then would probably be thought of as being irrelevant, according to um, his present moment. Take, for instance, a pastor who wears a suit and tie. That pastor is also tying himself to this current cultural moment. He is associating himself with upper middle class business professionals. When you see someone in a, in a nicely fitted suit and tie during the week, what do you think their occupation is? Most of us would probably say business, law, or finance. The suit and tie is the attire of upper middle class business professionals. And so when a pastor wears a suit and tie, he is implicitly tying himself to upper middle class business professionals. In so doing, he's also implicitly saying that this church is a church for upper middle class business professionals in the same way a hipster pastor is implicitly saying that this church is for young, edgy hipsters. What you wear does signify your place in our current cultural moment and what demographic of culture you're seeking to um, uh, pursue, you're seeking to appeal to. Now, the robe is not tied to anything in our current cultural moment. When I wear the, wear the robe, you're not thinking, boy, my pastor's a hipster. Nor are you thinking, my pastor looks like my lawyer. 
When you see the robe, you should think, my pastor is a Christian minister who stands upon the shoulders of the historic Christian church. When you see the robe, you should think that this church is not trying to appeal to the upper middle class professionals of Gig Harbor, nor are we trying to appeal to the young hipsters of Tacoma. We are trying to appeal to every sort of person so that we can be a congregation that truly transcends our current cultural moment. That is Christ's vision for the church. In the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor Scythian. The church is founded upon a different culture, a different set of politics, the new creation. The robe then signifies our Catholicity. It signifies that we are a rooted church, a historic church, and that I am not your professional, nor am I trying to be hip in order to appeal to your friends. I'm a Christian minister. One way in which we can embrace our Catholicity is by embracing the robe. Well, next week, we will turn our attention to how the robe signifies the office, the office of pastor. Let's pray.